You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of the Great War premium episode number 12. Last episode, we discussed the development of the French and German railways in the lead-up to the war, and this week we will start off by giving an overview of the rail situation in Britain before the war started. We will then roll into a discussion of what happened in that country once the war did start, along with a huge rail disaster that would rock the home front. We will spend just a bit of time on railways outside of the Western Front before we end our discussions with how the railways were used during the war and what happened to them after. There will, of course, be other random topics uh, spread throughout the episode, and I hope you enjoy this one. This is the last of the first year of premium episodes. Before the war, there was a bunch of money put into the British railways, almost all of which was put forward by private companies, of which there were many. There was a high percentage of double-tracked routes, and there were plenty of locomotives and carriages for the amount of track that was present, at least for what was expected of them if a war should break out. There were, however, four main problems with the British railway system when it came to what was asked of them starting in 1914. The first big problem was that there was little strategic planning involved in the creation of the various rail routes. This meant that some non-critical areas had plenty of tracks, and some absolutely critical areas were woefully short on tracks, stations, and all of the other facilities necessary to keep a railroad going. A great example of this uh, was the fact that there was only a single rail track that connected Scapa Flow with the rest of the country. This was absolutely critical because that single rail track found itself responsible for supplying the entirety of the British Grand Fleet for the first three years of the war. This was just one example, though, and this problem could be found in a variety of severities all over the country. The rail network was created by companies for economic purposes, with little influence from the government and military, which is how you get into a situation like Scapa Flow. The second problem was that the rails were heavily focused on London. However, the military needed the facilities more spread out, especially because London was not the main port for men and material to flow to and from the continent. The third problem was that they were just not designed to handle the massive surge in demand that the beginning of the war brought to the tracks. The closest to this level of traffic was maybe on, like, bank holidays, I guess? But those were an order of magnitude, or several orders of magnitude, 
below what would happen in 1914 and beyond. This meant that both the physical items, like carriages, were not able to handle with the demand, but also that railway controllers were just not prepared to handle this surge. The final issue was the huge number of railway companies. They all had their own or shared tracks, and they had their own locomotives, which varied wildly in quality. This created a nightmare, even after they became subject to government control. There had been a new committee set up to try and coordinate all the various parties involved, and to try and mitigate some of the problems discussed above, and it was called the Railways Executive Committee, and it had the power to manage the railways as a national system during the war. This was an important step, and it did simplify the managerial aspect of the problems. However, it could not solve the physical problems. After the war started, the British had another problem as well, one that I found to be quite interesting. And that was the fact that they saw a huge surge in civilian traffic on the rails. This was because so many people were brought into lucrative war industries that they had more spare change floating around that allowed them to pay for more journeys. To try and combat this increased demand, fares were raised, but this did not put much of a dent in the demand. It's been almost a decade since I took an economics class, but I believe this means that demand was price inelastic. They also did other things to try and save space, like cutting dining and sleeping cars, but this never really solved the problem. And in a society like Britain, where they sort of valued their freedom in a lot of ways, the government didn't feel like it could just impose travel sanctions. Another problem came into play in 1915 as well, and that was the problem of domestic goods transport. Before the war, and unlike the Continental Powers, the British had been surrounded by water, and because of this, seaborne transport of goods from one British port to another was a big piece of the freight industry. The percentage of the population that lived by the ocean or by rivers that were navigable was huge, and because of this, they often found it easier to load the goods onto a steamer and move it around the coast rather than on rail. However, when the U-boat threat began to rapidly increase, so too did the fear that these steamers would be easy targets. Because of this, goods that previously would have been transported by water were now on rails, and this, coupled with the increased traffic due to the war, resulted in tracks that began to quickly deteriorate in condition, which then meant more effort had to be put into maintaining them, and the trains had to go slower. The rails were not without disaster during the war. With that many trains, it's almost bound to occur for all of the countries in the war that at some point a disaster would occur. From what I can tell, according to a wonderful Wikipedia page, the third worst incident of the war, and the 25th worst of all time, occurred on May 22, 1915 in Scotland. It's called the Quentin's Hill Rail Crash. This would occur on the West Coast Main Line, which was one of the busiest in all of Britain during the war. And one crucial piece of information here is that unlike France and Germany, Britain did not enforce a common speed on all of its trains. Instead, all of the trains were allowed to go as fast as they wanted. And dealing with that situation of trying to let trains pass one another, get slower trains out of the way, stuff like that, was a situation left up to local signalmen. On the morning of May 22nd, a slow train was late near Quintons Hill, Scotland. So when it arrived, one of the signalmen sent it off into a loop line so that two faster trains could overtake it. This was a very standard procedure, and it probably happened all the time. 
However, there was also a local train in front of the faster trains. And since it could not go onto the loop line, it was sent onto the tracks running in the opposite direction. I'm sure you can see where this is going, but stay with me. This type of situation, with a train sitting on the wrong side of the tracks, was not at all abnormal and was often used to let trains pass each other. It was used so often that there was entire sets of safety procedures set up around making it safer, making it work just fine. First, the signalman had to send a signal down to the next station through telegraph to let them know what was happening. And then the signalman had to put a safety collar in place so that he would not forget that there was a train in the way. This was basically a way of saying a big note of don't touch the switch, it's going to cause bad things. Both of these actions were not taken in this case. Part of the problem was that the signalman at the station had worked out a deal so that one of them could come in a bit late, 30 minutes late or so. And while this required a bit of fiddling with the logs to cover up, it had not been a problem so far. However, because that was happening at this point in time, several minutes later, a troop train filled with 500 soldiers on the way to Gallipoli came hurtling down the track. They were given the proper signal to proceed from the same signal box that had just put the local train in the way. It did not see it until it was too late, and the crash was catastrophic. It did not just end there, though. Because even after some unhurt troops managed to get out of the wreckage, they were then hit by one of the trains coming down the opposite end of the tracks. Some of the cars from the troop train had derailed enough to be sitting on those other tracks, and then that train also crashed, which then went off the tracks, and then caught fire, and everything caught fire, and it was just a disaster. 227 troops, passengers, and railway staff died, and another 246 were injured. Most of the blame was placed on the signalman, and this is very accurate. Having ignored several important safety regulations, they have to share some blame. However, in some ways, this was inevitable, especially since not all of Britain's trains were traveling at the same speed. Humans make mistakes sometimes, and in this case, the mistake was very costly. One effect that I just want to briefly touch on, and that we will hit on during the main episodes early next year, is the effect that railways had on women in the workplace during the war. During the war, employment of women on the railways went from 13,000 to 68,000. And maybe more importantly, it opened up jobs that had not been available before. Women were, not allowed to co- were now allowed to collect and issue tickets, act as porters, along with a variety of new job opportunities. This seems like a small thing, but it did begin the process of breaking down barriers for the post-war period. In Trains to the Trenches, Andrew Roden would say this about the change. Quote, it would be cliche to suggest that all women employed by the railways enjoyed their work or that they found it liberating. As with the menfolk, many did not. It certainly wasn't the driving force behind the suffragette movement, but improving that women could do the jobs hitherto denied to them as well as men, one of the fundamental objections to employing them was removed. Before we start digging into what happened after the war started, I just want to touch briefly on some of the other countries during the war and their railways. I do not have nearly as much information about these areas, so this will be pretty brief. In Austria-Hungary, there had been a huge boom in railway construction from 1880 to 1900, and this would continue until the war. This put them in a pretty good place, 
Although one problem that they would have is that there was not a lot of track mileage going to and inside of Glacia. This was a result of the fact that before there was just no reason to put a bunch of tracks into this area of the country, there certainly were not very many economic incentives. This resulted in it not having the density of some other areas of the empire, which would slow the Austrian army down, especially as it advanced advanced into Russia later in the war. In Italy, the government had taken over and nationalized the railways in 1905, but they faced a similar problem. The region in the far north of the country, and especially on the eastern side, right by the Austrian border, did not have much in the way of rail tracks. Therefore, they found themselves at a disadvantage as they tried to supply their ever-growing armies in the area. The final country we will discuss was Russia, and for them, rail transport was extremely important due to their size. By 1914, they had about 45,000 miles of track, and importantly, it was a different gauge than the rest of Europe. This difference amounted to it being 3.5 inches wider, which posed a serious problem for invaders as they moved into Russia, because standard European cars just couldn't use the rails. Now, this would have also caused a problem for the Russians advancing into other people's territory, but they didn't really think about that. At the same time, the tracks weren't different enough for invaders because a difference of only 3.5 inches didn't allow the Germans to put another rail inside the one that was there and then just run on that. Instead, they had to go to the effort of dismantling the whole thing and moving one rail slightly in, which took much more time and was much more uh, difficult. And this was planned, like the Russians knew that this is what they were doing. This type of issue would cause the German commanders a lot of headache, especially in the last two years of the war, as they advanced deeper into Russian territory. The Russians had also taken the steps to never allow the railways in western Poland, especially west of Warsaw, to reach the density of the rest of Russia, because they knew in the event of war, this area would probably quickly be captured by the Germans, so why give them that mobility? mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. At the Explorers Podcast, we plunge into jungles and deserts, across mighty oceans and frigid ice caps, over and to the top of great mountains, and even into outer space. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventurers from throughout history. So come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. So let's move on to what happened when the war started. 
Some of this info I touched on way back during the main episodes at the beginning of the war. If you do not remember, that is understandable. Those episodes were rubbish anyway. When the war started, the Germans had 11,000 trains and the French 7,000. One of the primary engines used by the Germans was the Prussian P8460, which was apparently a fantastic piece of machinery that would be built until the mid-20s, and then the last one would not be retired until the 1970s, which is crazy. In railway designations, a number like 460 will tell you how many of each type of wheels the engine has. The first number stands for the unpowered leading wheels, the middle number for the driving wheels, and the third number for the trailing wheels. So in this configuration, the P8, and there were many configurations, but in this specific configuration, the P8 had four front wheels, six driving wheels, and zero trailing wheels. At one point, the Germans were running a train from Cologne to the border every three minutes. And this allowed them to move the monumental amount of troops and material that were needed to keep their grand offensive going. To move just one army corps, of which there were several, required 170 coaches for officers, 960 coaches for infantry, 2,960 for cavalry, and 1915 for artillery. That's 1,915, not the year 1915. Then they required about the same again for the supplies that they would be taken with that would not be taken with them, and that would not even count the supplies that they would need just days after the fighting started and a few days after that and a few days after that. This is a staggering amount and required a huge national effort to try and make the entire thing happen. There was also a huge effect after the German offensive through Belgium to extend the German lines through Belgium and France as the army advanced. For this task, there were 25,000 laborers working on the tracks as soon as possible to repair those that were damaged during the advance and to create new ones to handle additional traffic. This was not an easy task and would require months to complete, and it would only really be completed in 1915. For the French, all of the railways were taken over by the military almost immediately, especially in the zone of the armies, which stretched back from the front. Each route was carefully reevaluated and classified based on its maximum carrying capacity, and unlike Britain, a national standard of 12 miles per hour was adopted for all trains. This allowed them to avoid any of the complicated route management that caused that big crash in Scotland, although France would not be without its disasters. Once the front settled down, the French used a system where trains would start their journeys carrying just one type of item, say food or ammunition. Then when the trains moved up to the front, they would stop at a regulating station, which was a decent uh, distance from the front, where they would all be mixed together. So a food train would be broken up and combined with trains for ammunition, water, mail, replacements, everything, so that these could be taken to a specific area of the front where they were needed. The idea was that each train would contain everything that a French unit would need to remain in the line, and in this regard they were quite successful. The British found themselves forced to use French trains when they were on the continent, initially. This worked okay for a while. However, as the British expeditionary force grew, and grew some more and grew again, it started to put more and more strain on the French systems. Eventually, near the end of 1915, Britain would take over the railway operations behind their area of the front. 
This was done by slowly expanding their control out from the ports that the British were using to ship items to the continent. Now, there were several of these on the French coastline, which were almost completely dedicated to supplying the BEF while it was still on the continent. There was also huge improvements made by all three countries to the rail networks that were being used for this war traffic. However, they could not just constantly lay new track wherever they wanted. They had to consider if the lines in the area were also able to handle the additional traffic, because bottlenecks would just prevent any new track from actually helping, and in fact it could even hurt. Even when they wanted to create new tracks, they ran into another problem though, or really two problems. First of all, there were issues with manpower. When the war started, everybody thought that it would be a short war, so there was not enough thought given to a person's job that they had before they were brought into the army. This meant that trained maintenance, factory, and engineering workers were all recruited into the army and out of their jobs. This also meant that pretty rapidly after the war started, skilled workers were in short supply. This was not just a railway problem, and you see a pattern of all governments quickly starting to pull these skilled workers out of the line. But in the short term, and certainly in early 1915, it meant that the ability to expand the rail networks and the ability to keep up with the required maintenance was pretty much impossible. Because of this, engines rolling stock and the railroads themselves began to break down at an alarming rate. This just made trying to increase the capacity of the whole system even more difficult. The other problem that they faced was simply one of scale. They were having enough difficulties keeping the traffic up to the point that was needed to begin with and keeping the tracks going and the trains going, let alone being able to divert resources to expanding the network. These type of problems would be lessened in, in time as the situation in the West became more stable, but it was certainly a huge problem for the first year of the war. The last topic for this episode will be special purpose trains. Now, the vast majority of trains used during the war were standard freight trains. Big engine in the front, lots of cars following behind. However, there were a few special types of trains that I find quite interesting, and we will cover three of them today. Armored trains, ambulance trains, and narrow gauge trains. We start with armored trains, which were mostly used on the eastern front. Armored trains were not an area that saw a lot of developmental focus by most countries before the war, or during it. It was really only Russia and Austria-Hungary that put a lot of work into them. For Britain, France, and Germany, they had very little focus for a variety of reasons, one of which is that they were deemed to be simply too vulnerable for the modern battlefield, although the British did have one right at the beginning that participated in First Ypres. The Russians did believe in them, though, and they had several armored trains that were designed and in service before the war. These started as a kind of mobile fort, with some infantry with rifles firing through holes in the armor and maybe some small artillery pieces or machine guns. But during the war, they would slowly evolve, getting bigger, more heavily armed and armored, becoming more like naval vessels on tracks than anything else, with lots of turrets and machine guns. However, no matter what armament it had, it could not be of any use if it could not move up to the front, and for this purpose, it had to have a locomotive, and this is where things got dangerous. If you think about what a steam-powered locomotive is, it's pretty much a big steel tank with highly pressurized water and steam inside. This could get up to pressures approaching 200 PSI. And that meant that when a bullet penetrated the pressurized tank, it might cause an explosion. 
This was a problem that could never truly be solved with steam power. Sure, you could put more armor on it, causing the weight to skyrocket, but no matter what you did, if the tank was penetrated, at the very least, the train would be immobile forever. At the very worst, it would explode. So after they went the armor route for a little while, they switched focus and instead moved to smaller gasoline-powered trains. This, these did not have even close to the pulling power of the steam versions, but they could provide enough power to haul a few small artillery guns and some ammunition behind them, and maybe some machine guns as well. Putting these on train tracks was still a huge advantage and gave the smaller gasoline engines to the ability to pull far more than they would have under normal circumstances. While these were used throughout the war, I can't really pretend that they were decisive in any way. They were just an interesting tool used on the battlefield. I also believe that they, this, would be not, this would not be the last time that they were used, with armored trains also making an appearance in World War II. Our next type of trains is ambulance trains, which I'm pretty sure is the exact opposite of armored trains. While the more offensive armored trains had been considered by the Western armies before the war and then disregarded due to tactical or strategical reasons, for France and Germany, they simply did not properly plan for the need for ambulance trains, really, at all. This meant that they went into the war without a great way to get wounded soldiers from the front to the rear areas. Now this may have been okay if this war was like any of the previous ones, but we all know it wasn't. The British were a little better off, with a grand total of six ambulance trains in France shortly after the war started. This may not seem like many, but given the size of the British contingent, it was much larger in proportion than any other army. There were still some easy-to-solve design problems that would be ironed out later, like the fact that there was no way for doctors and nurses to move between the train cars while it was running, making it very difficult to care for everybody. However, these types of issues would eventually be solved. There was also a large investment made by charitable organizations like the Red Cross into ambulance trains, raising a lot of funding to create more of them for obvious reasons. By the end of the war, this area of the railway saw a huge increase in numbers and in sophistication. By the end of the war, there would be large numbers of well-equipped, well-maintained, and well-staffed ambulance trains that functioned more like mobile hospitals than just normal troop transports. The final type of special train that we will discuss today is narrow-gauge railways. It was simply impossible for full-size trains to move all the way up to the trenches. It was just not going to happen for a variety and for what I hope are pretty obvious reasons. Therefore, as soon as the front began to solidify, there was an effort made to find a way to bridge the gap between the actual front lines, like the trenches themselves, and the railheads, or at the very least, the railheads and like the artillery lines. This is where the narrow-gauge railways really came into their own. They had a few very key advantages that made them invaluable for this role. The first was that they were simply cheap and easy to construct, the tracks could be easily prefabricated in 5 meter sections, and then moved up to the front and quickly manhandled into position. The second was that even before they started using locomotives, they were used to create tramways to increase the carrying capacity for horses and mules. It appears that the Canadians get the points for creating this type of system the first time, and it greatly increased the carrying capacity of these horses and helped to bridge this gap that we're talking about. 
This type of system really paved the way for more permanent railways later. It was an easy uh, way to enhance things. The third benefit was that these tracks were very resilient. Since the track was so easily maneuvered into place, that also meant that it could be easily repaired if damaged. This was also true not just of the tracks, but also of the cars themselves. The rail cars were small and light enough that if they were derailed, they could be easily lifted back onto the tracks by a small unit of men. All of these factors made these small railways almost invaluable. For the British in 1916, these little tracks were carrying 20,000 tons and 30,000 men to the front every single day. They were an essential cog in the machine that made all of those huge artillery bombardments possible because there was no other way to get that number of shells up to the guns. It should also be said that none of this would have been possible without the 40,000 Chinese workers that were brought to the Western Front as laborers. They didn't get paid well, they were expected to work long hours, and they really deserve their own episode at some point in the future. While the trains played such a huge role during the war, they also played part in the post-war settlement. For example, Germany had to give up 5,000 locomotives and 150,000 railway wagons to the Allies. Most of these went to the Belgians, who had lost most of theirs to the Germans early in the war, and then some went to the French. There was also a huge maintenance burden placed on the invaded countries, especially on the Belgians, as their rail network had been greatly expanded during the war, which was, which was good for them, almost certainly. But also, it was extremely wore down by the end of the war, and this meant that there was a large maintenance effort that had to be completed before it was suitable for civilian traffic. I think that it would be a true statement to say that World War I would be the first war that simply could not have happened in the form that it did without railroads. The scope, the scale, the length, all were made possible by the iron workhorses behind the lines, traveling day and night all over Europe. I hope these two episodes have helped you understand these sort of the scope and the scale of the problem experienced by all the countries as they tried to make these massive networks of iron roads. And next week, or next episode, not next week, we will discuss uh, what happened as the development of the Berlin to Baghdad Railway got started before the war and how it sort of played around a bit with the political situation, the global, the geopolitical situation before the war in what was a very interesting, if flawed and never going to happen sort of way, project. Anyway, thank you for supporting me here on Patreon, and I hope you will join me next episode.